Hello, everyone, and welcome to our webinar discussion on natural climate solutions and supply chains. Uh, in the usual way, uh, people are filtering in to join us, so I shall do uh, a minute or so uh, of introductions before we get started. I can see plenty of people are joining us, so welcome. Uh, my name is Toby Webb. I'm a founder of Innovation Forum, and I think you can see on the screen who's, uh, who's with us. I will ask them to do very brief sort of two-line introductions about themselves before we get started. But we don't do uh, long intros uh, because there's very important things to talk about, uh, particularly incentives, implementation uh, and engagement in natural climate solutions in the supply chain. Uh, I don't know about you, but every newsletter I get uh, in my inbox this morning, it seems, uh, is mentioning natural climate solutions. Uh, and yet some people are still confused as to what they mean, what the scope is. And of course, there's a huge number of questions arising on this subject. Carbon accounting, scope, how far down the supply chain, who pays for what. Um, these are <laughs> classic questions in climate change, but of course, putting them into the supply chain uh, deepens the complexity. So uh, we are going to be talking uh, about how we tackle some of that. We cannot guarantee we have all the answers for you. Uh, our speakers know their stuff, but they don't know everything. And this is a fast moving target, as we know. So we're going to try uh, and talk a bit about um, how uh, implementation of natural capital, natural climate solutions works in, in supply chains. We're going to have a conversation about natural landscape conservation um, and how that fits in and talk about incentives. Um, and then we'll be taking your questions. I will try and weave your questions in to the webinar uh, as we go, and then we'll have some time at the end as well. So you can put them uh, in, the, in the chat function uh, I believe, um, and uh, or is it in the Q&A function? I'm not sure, perhaps one of my colleagues can confirm, but um, I think if you put them in the Q&A function, that might be where we're going. Um, but perhaps Anita, you can let me know uh, as we go. Um, so Q&A function, yes. So put your questions in there as we go, and I shall bring them into the conversation, uh, and then we'll have some time at the end. Uh, and I'm delighted that joining me um, is Emily Coonan from Nestle, John Detling from Qantas, and Gary Poli from Lestari Capital. So let's do very brief intros. Tell everyone in your own words what you all do. Uh, maybe, Emily, let's start with you. Just a couple of lines on, on what your responsibilities are with Nestle. Sure. Yeah, good morning, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm with Nestle's uh, sustainable sourcing team. Um, I lead our climate delivery work around forests and our sustainable sourcing strategy for palm oil and seafood uh, based in Malaysia. Thank you, Emily. Gary. Hi, thank you, Toby. Uh, my name is Gary Paoli. Um, I am a, a, a co-founder um, and senior advisor to Listeri Capital. Uh, which is the hat that I'll be wearing today. Some of you may also know me as a, a co-founder and director of Demeter, which is a research and consulting company working in sustainable agriculture and forestry. Thanks, Gary. John. Hi, everybody. My name is John Detling. At Qantas, I lead our uh, services and innovation. Um, uh, I've been working a lot in the recent years with uh, different companies on this topic of natural climate solutions, including a lot of the leading land and ag-based companies. So I'm excited to have a chance to talk about it. Thanks, John. And yeah, viewers, if you're interested in some useful analysis and all this stuff, Qantas does some excellent reports, which are um, accessible and readable, even, even to those of us less experienced. So I commend their website to you. They've got some really useful resources out there. So check out Qantas's work. This uh, webinar is held in advance of our Future of Climate Action Forum, which is next week, uh, which focuses almost exclusively on Scope 3 
and the big scary questions of uh, what we do about it. This is this is part of that. Um, and we're looking forward to continuing the conversation next week. So um, if you haven't signed up for the conference, please do. The advantage of them being online is they are much cheaper than they used to be. So we are much more inclusive. Um, just don't ask me about our margins. Um, so you can uh, sign up at the on the website and have a look uh, at who's speaking. And I hope you can join uh, us for the conference next week. So let's start off by talking about why natural climate solutions matter in supply chains. Let's just sort of set the scene here, really, um, just so we understand the context of what we're talking about here. John, why don't we start with you for a bit, a bit of an overview, really, and then, and then maybe we'll hear from Gary, and then I'll ask Emily to talk about what that means for Nestle. So, John, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Thanks, Toby. Um, first of all, with that question of why natural climate solutions, I think the, the clear answer is that land-based emissions account for at least 25%, maybe a bit more, of our total emissions on the planet. And so if we're trying to achieve a, a stable climate without considering land-based emissions, um, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna get there. One of the other key points is that um, natural, uh, natural emissions might be the most quickly reversible. And so there's a chance to not only um, reduce that 25% of the emissions, but actually more quickly sequester carbon on the land than we might find with, with some of the other areas of emissions or, or reduction opportunities. And so natural climate solutions really need to be um, a significant part of, um, of the overall strategy to address the, um, the climate topic. Um, they're really critical, I think, for a lot of corporate goals because for many companies, um, those emissions are even bigger than that 25% that I mentioned. For companies where their supply chains touch the land significantly, um, we've seen cases where land-based emissions, you know, are uh, over 50%, maybe even three quarters of the total emissions across the company's um, supply chain. And so being able to look at how do we impact those emissions, how do we create more sustainable land systems, how do we stop emitting carbon from the land and start putting carbon back on the land um, are really critical. And so um, our, our goal across the whole planet needs to be to get to a, basically a zero emission state um, for the economy. And for companies, we need to be looking at getting to a, a real zero number um, for those companies. So for companies that have, have significant land-based carbon emissions in their supply chain, um, these types of opportunities we're talking about with land-based solutions in terms of um, forest carbon sequestration, soil sequestration, et cetera, it's really critical um, to help these companies achieve their, um, their strategies toward, toward getting to a real zero. Um, there's quite a few barriers we've had to overcome just to get where we are, and there's still some in front of us. So I thought it was useful to talk a little bit about what are the barriers in getting us to the point where um, I would say we're not only accounting for natural climate solutions, but we're actually doing enough to, to create natural climate solutions and being able to, um, to leverage what, what companies are able to bring into that, to that work. Um, one of the key barriers we overcame maybe a decade or so ago is just accounting for the value chain as a whole when it comes to emissions accounting. The publication of the scope three standard about a decade ago, a little bit over a decade ago, um, was really critical in getting us to now be thinking about the, the scope of say re responsibility or accountability being the full value chain. And with the, the publication quite a few years later of the SBT initiative, looking at science-based targets, um, we started to really see the level of ambition raised about the full the emissions across the full value chain, where companies are now taking 
accountability and setting targets that include um, the supply chain emissions. And because for the great majority of companies, their interaction with what's happening on the land is a part of the value chain, not a part of their direct operations, that focus on saying, hey, this is a part of what we should be accounting for. This is a part of what we should be trying to impact and helping get to a, a net zero state um, was really critical. One of the other key um, hurdles we overcame um, and are, are still working on is actually counting bio-based carbon and counting land-based carbon in the way that we think about um, our carbon emissions. At Qantas, we spent several years recently working on a sector-wide um, land use change guidance about how to account for GHG emissions from land-based sources. And we've been continuing to collaborate on that topic with GHG protocol as they update their guidance with the science-based targets, food, land, and ag sector guidance as they, they set some guidance there. And we're now at a point where I think it's accepted that we should be accounting for these emissions in, in what we're doing. And of course, that's, that's really critical because um, even though it, what matters most is the actions we take, the way we measure things really do matter because we use those systems um, to guide all, our, all of our programs. Um, John, let me just uh, come back on some of those points in a minute. I'm just going to bring Gary in here. Gary, um, what's Lestari Capital's interest in this? I mean, John has made a, a really compelling case for engagement in this. But um, what would you add to that, particularly from a from a, a financial point of view, I suppose? Yeah, thank you, Toby. Um, uh, and thank you, John. That's great stage setting, I think, for a lot of this discussion today. Um, a couple of, of, of points, and then I'll maybe describe, uh, answer your specific question uh, Toby around Lestari Capital's role. Um, like one one thing is a high level point that I think is you know, at risk of stating the ob obvious. Um, you know what we're recognizing uh, is that climate, global climate change is a mega driver, right? Affecting agricultural production at local, regional, and global scales, and you know with implications for the bottom line, the business operations of companies whose raw materials depend upon the function of those supply chains, and so. I think for us, you know, this question around what is the urgency and why companies should be taking action and that on, on NCS to address scope three is uh, part and parcel of behaving rationally as a business, right? And so we know, as John has said, that land-based emissions are a significant part of, uh, of emissions are contributing to global climate change. And so if we are not taking direct action as part of addressing our role and responsibility in reducing agricultural emissions, then I think there's a very strong case to be made for we're not behaving rationally as a business enterprise. Um, in terms of Listari Capital's uh, role and, and, and our um, interest in this is, so Listari Capital is a company that really is, is working to uh, develop and experiment with innovative uh, market-based solutions to environmental problems, especially those that arise from market failures in um, land-based sectors, most especially for forestry um, and agriculture. And the way in which we're doing that, you know, as I said, is, is through uh, identifying specific market failures that are part of preventing what otherwise might seem rational behavior um, or uh, beneficial economic activities to, to undertake. And then doing that through the development and facilitation of partnerships between parties who would seem um, otherwise motivated to transact, but who are not as a result of specific market failures. Um, there's a lot more that I can say about that, and I'm sure that we will circle back to that over the course of the hour, but um, maybe I'll just leave it right there. 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you both, John and Gary. I think we've established the, the compelling and urgent business case for engagement in this space. Um, now, Emily, uh, coming specifically to you, what does all this mean for Nestle? I mean, you, you had quite a lot on your plate anyway, <laughs> and now you have to deal with this big sprawling concept of, of natural climate solutions and how it sits in the supply chain. Um, what does it mean to Nestle at the moment and, and where are you with it? And I'm uh, really interested to hear your views, Emily. Sure. Yeah. So I think um, John and Gary really kind of set the rationale for this really well. So let me just put it in the context of Nestle's um, climate commitment and Nestle's climate roadmap. So Nestle uh, made a commitment to net zero emissions in 2019. Um, so net zero by 2050 and to have our emissions by 2030. Then in December last year, we released our roadmap of how we'll get there. And if you take a look at that roadmap, what you'll see is that the 2018 baseline we're working with, um, we have 92 million tons of CO2 emissions that we're trying to get to net zero. Now, being a food company, as you might expect, the vast majority of that is scope three. Over 70% is associated with the ingredients that we source. So, of course, our roadmap to net zero includes a strong focus on net zero ingredients and activities like regenerative agriculture, um, achieving and, and maintaining no deforestation, agroforestry, conservation, and restoration of forests, peatlands, and other natural ecosystems. As part of that, for example, we've committed to planting 200 million trees by 2030. So then, if you look at um, that, that aspect of getting to having our emissions by 2030 with the business as usual growth, that means that we will be reducing or removing about 70 million tons of CO2 in 2030. And about half of that is expected to be NCS, including around 12 million tons of CO2 in removals, so sequestering carbon in soils and trees. So the framing of these types of interventions and in the, the context of a climate commitment, that's, that's new for us. But doing those types of activities is something that Nestle has been doing for many years. <clears throat> Um, we've been working with, with farmers on agricultural practices, and we've been working on achieving no deforestation in our supply chain um, for a decade or more. And I think in 2020, while we were developing our climate roadmap, it was also kind of a moment of reflection on that work we've been doing in the past and, and a moment where we came really could see and have the, the realization that we needed to evolve our approach and, and change our way of looking at sustainable supply chains to not just being focused on ensuring that our supply chains don't convert natural ecosystems, but that they also actively conserve and restore them. So with the climate change strategy um, and our net zero commitment, this is really solidifying that focus and lays the path for us to really accelerate that, that evolution of the strategy. So scaling up work on landscape approaches, reforestation, peatland restoration, et cetera, and really focusing that work on, on insetting approaches. So focusing doing those interventions in ways that are connected to the landscapes that we source from um, is really central to, to how we're looking at moving this forward. Thank you. Yes, we, we did a session not so long ago about one of your activities there in Peru, which described in detail, I think, in, in an hour long session, the intricacies of, of trying to make that work. It is extremely challenging. Um, let me ask you all before we move on a bit, about where we think this is headed. I mean, Nestle's made some very big commitments we've heard about, but John, um, you work with lots of companies at Qantas. Um, I'm not asking you to name names, but where are the others 
in, you know, with reference to, to someone like Nestle or a company like Nestle who've taken a leadership position, uh, uh, is it generally that people are, are struggling with this now uh, and they're looking for ways to get started? I'm just trying to get a sense of your views of where this is headed, particularly after COP26. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say there's a lot of people, you know, in, in the same the same stage that Nestle are at, and they, and and maybe um, maybe a little bit behind, but really on board with the idea of setting the ambition um, where where it needs to be. And and I think that's really encouraging to see the number of companies um, in the just the past two years that have really stepped up and said our our ambition needs to be zero. It might take us, as Nestle says, thirty years. To get there, but this is where the bar needs to be, and we need to start thinking long term, and um, you know, and creatively about how we solve these problems. I think uh, just thinking forward a bit, what we really need to see is that the action matches that ambition and mac- matches those you know statements and claims. I think that's what the you know the coming years will tell us um, is: do we actually find those solutions? Are are companies really willing to put their you know their business and their money where their their mouth is on this topic, and will we really see you know the the resources driving towards this change, et cetera? Um, I I think for it to work um, at scale across the whole um, across the whole industry and not just for you know the leaders like Nestle, we really need to find ways that these solutions are are in fact good business and not seen as an investment, but actually a you know a better way to do things. And I think with a lot of the with a lot of the ag practices we're talking about, they improve the land system and improve the productivity and and so forth. And so I think there is there is a good chance of finding ways that this, in the long run, you know, this is a better way to manage our food system and a net savings on our on our economy and not a, a drain on resources. But we need to we need to get to the place where people have that mindset. We need to get to the place where it's actually you know creating that return all across the the value chain. Gary, yeah, same question to you, but perhaps through the lens of COP26. What, what's the best outcome from that that could support uh, development of these solutions by, by companies? When governments have struggled with the sort of regulation incentives beyond you know, basic uh, emissions trading systems in the EU. So what's your, what's your best hope for an outcome for COP26 to help drive this forward, Gary? Yeah, maybe just a, a short response to that one. Toby, but but I, I think, and this picks up a little bit on some of the points that, that John has just made that, you know, I, I think that uh, understandably, so I, I work very, with a, with a very strong focus on forestry and agricultural supply chains and principally um, working with companies who for the last five years have been very focused on the pursuit of their no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation commitments, which is a very, which is a very strong supply chain focus. And I think whatever one's views on where we've made success and where we have not, um, where we've made progress you know, in advancing those commitments, what's very clear is that we have slowed the rates of deforestation. We've got much better understanding around the dynamics that are underlying some of that, how we interface and leverage private sector, public sector, sector commitments and pull civil society in as an effective part of change. But here, what we're talking about today is sort of a pivot away, now I don't want to say away from, but an expansion of, of, the, of your views on what your commitments uh, represent, right? And how to pursue those outside of the focus on your individual supply chain. So in terms of what we might um, hope for and imagine, you know, at the, uh, at the upcoming COP would be 
a, a wider um, recognition among companies throughout the uh, agricultural supply chains who have made very bold, explicit um, commitments on uh, eliminating deforestation from their supply chains, widening those commitments to include um, uh, alongside uh, the pursuit of, of, of cleaning up and, and uh, making more sustainable their supply chains, they're also committed to making investments uh, um, alongside that in NCS type actions on the ground that will be um, complementing those, those supply chain efforts. So making, bringing that a bit more into the mainstream of what it means to be a, a responsible leading corporate citizen. So is it your expectation that's gonna be talked about a lot around the COP26 meeting and it's, it's simply going to be one of the things that companies are really asked to focus on rather than having any specific outcomes from COP26 that support it? I suppose, yeah, being a realist, um, I, I think, of course, we will be, we, there's no doubt we will be seeing certain members who are making strong, bold commitments. Um, but but I think at a higher qualitative level, I, I suppose what we, what we should be, uh, what I would be hoping for is for a clear signal of a shift towards this becoming a more part of the mainstream. NCS interventions becoming more part of the mainstream within the private sector. Thank you. Um, Emily, let's, let's talk um, about the, the bar barriers and challenges to, to action here for, for implementation. Um, what, what are the challenges that, that Nestle needs to tackle to overcome um, the, the issues of transitioning and, and getting NCS at scale in the supply chain? It's, it's incredibly complex, as we know. We, we're not expecting Nestle or anybody else to have all the answers yet. I mean, we've gone from, de from zero deforestation to, to more landscape approaches, and, and now this. And it's, it's interesting to see how they fit together, and, and, uh, and I'd love to hear your views on how it's taking shape. Yeah, absolutely. So we've, we've made this really big commitment and now we're in the process of, of making that a reality and delivering on it. And I think there's kind of three buckets of challenges that we're faced with. Um, one is, is the challenge that we're faced with for all topics related to sustainable supply chains, and that's the complexity of the supply chain. So really knowing where our ingredients come from, investing in sites in, in those ingredient origins is critical. And at the same time, supply chains, our supply chains are complex, they're very global and they're dynamic. So we have to have a really continue to have this big push on traceability, transparency, effective data management systems. The second though, is, is changing the mindset around um, investing in projects at a landscape level, not just the sites in your supply chain. And I know, um, Toby, like you said, this is something we talk about a lot, but Landscape level projects with um, NCS solutions, especially focused on active conservation and restoration, um, moving away from that focus just on no deforestation, means that we're talking about projects that are really long-term, place-based, having multifaceted um, NCS dimensions to them. And I think the frameworks we're used to reporting on and being evaluated by are more siloed in the issue areas. And so we really need those frameworks that will allow reporting impact and addressing the topic of company attribution in these more complex solutions, but they're the solutions that we know we need to be implementing. And then the third aspect is the, or the third, I guess, challenge that I would highlight is um, to recognize that NCS uh, projects connected to companies' value chains, or what many call insetting projects, are a legitimate part of solutions to net zero. And so we need to ensure that these projects can be counted in net zero claims and have really standardized and credible accounting methods to do that.
Yeah, let's come on in a minute to talk about the challenges of who owns who's carbon in the supply chain. That is going to be one of the big challenges, isn't it, going forward? But just before that, Emily, perhaps a, a little bit more on how you're talking with big suppliers about this. I mean, I know you work a lot with Golden Agri, who, who we feature a lot in our work. And, you know, it, it seems to me, know, knowing a bit about what they do and how you guys work together, that a lot of the implementation here is going to be about implementing sustainable rural development initiatives in a sense that, you know, if you're looking at rural communities, you can't ignore the social and the financial and the economic development angle if you want to keep nature standing and restore it. And um, I'm just wondering if you if you have any further examples of how you're talking with big suppliers and others about making that happen, kind of bringing in the, the carbon angle, but possibly doing it through more of a social and economic development lens. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important that we all recognize that when we're talking about um, nature positive strategies, that livelihoods and human rights and community rights are central to that. It's not a separate topic. And so I think there's kind of I mean, let's say, first of all, that we have not figured this out, but there's two ways that we're looking at this right now. One is we have to make sure that absolutely every single project is safeguarding um, on human rights, on livelihoods, et cetera. We can't just take a, only a carbon lens or only a one issue lens and, and have these unintended consequences. The second is that we're looking at how can we it comes back to the topic of the landscape approaches that we've talked about at all your conferences there. Um, but how do we really make people the center of the solutions and start with them, um, focus on resilient livelihoods and ensuring that the solutions are, are delivering on that. Um, I think back to kind of some of the smallholder initiatives we've talked about that are, we're integrating um, forest protection and restoration in with but it all starts with understanding what are the economic drivers in the community? What are the, the values around forest in the community? And then building the, the incentives around conservation and restoration to deliver on those. I hope that made sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Complex topic. Uh, John, I don't know if you have any comment on that particular bit. Obviously, Qantas, you, you guys are the, the measurement experts. But as we know, measuring social um impacts and outcomes is, is pretty complex and can sometimes be a little subjective. I wondered uh, what your views were on uh, on how we blend these two areas together moving forward to, to make this stuff happen. John, uh, John, you're on mute. Happens to me at least once, once every meeting. Um, in, indeed, the metrics are important, but they're a tool to help us take correct action and, and measure. And so it's really important to be focusing on, you know, managing what matters rather than what can be measured. And we know that we need to be paying attention to social issues when it comes to sustainable supply chains. And I think, I think it's really important to keep our eyes on the fact that what we're aiming at is really sustainable supply chains, not just net zero carbon supply chains. And so we have to look at, you know, what's the function of the land for nature? How does it affect, you know, our water hydrology, um, the social systems that surround it, et cetera. And we're, I think carbon's kind of leading the way in helping us think about how to account for and how to intervene in these systems. But as we mature those interventions, we, we really need to make sure that we're looking much more holistically and need to find some pragmatic ways to be able to you know, account for those things and help companies with such huge diverse supply chains manage those issues, even if they're not, even if they're not perfectly uh, measurable. I'd much rather see you know, 
um, see some error in the measurement, but the action be the right action, then then vice versa. Thank you, Gary. I'm, I'm sure you have a view on this. So looking in depth into supply chains, you obviously are cognizant of the need to link up the, the social economic development angle. I mean, that, that must be pretty confusing for a lot of companies out there. Um, you know, we just got some basic traceability and some measurement of what's happening on the ground with, with you know, forests and, and so on. And now, now we bring in social development and now we bring carbon accounting. It's, it's, it's a complex task, isn't it? Uh, what, what have you observed about how well this is understood at the moment in the companies you, you look at? Yeah, I, you know, that, that, that's a great question. And I, and I suppose, you know, in, on one level, the answer is that, you know, it, it's a very, very wide range, right? Um, again, you know, companies, meaning producers, processors, traders downstream, um, you know, there, there is, I think, an often like underappreciated sophistication to the nuanced understanding that they have around the issues that they directly interface with as part of their a part of doing their business as part of advancing more sustainable supply chains as john had mentioned you know without a narrow focus on on forest per se uh emissions per se social benefits and livelihoods per se but a more holistic take on things you know on the other hand uh, you know, it's one thing to understand the nuance and the complexity. It's something else to be able to 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 plan and to implement strategies that effectively address all all of that nuance and all of that complexity. Um, I think you know when we talk about this in the context of NCS, right, which is really uh, to be you know explicit and simple in 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 the way to conceptualize that. I mean, we're really talking about projects on the ground, right. Um, Companies really, to a very large extent, are still, you know, relying almost entirely on the project proponents or the project partners who would be implementing those actions on the ground. And it's within that space, you know, of the project proponents themselves, um, you know, uh, there, there is a, a lot of expertise and a lot of very good work that's happening at the community level, um, at, at larger kind of um, quasi-landscape level um, initiatives, and also at, at, at jurisdictional scales, right? There, there is a lot of work and understanding, and, and again, I think very sophisticated, successful approaches that people are adopting, but they are very early stage, right? Um, I think, unfortunately, we have, you know, a much larger stable of examples of failed projects and failed efforts than we do, than we do successful ones. But there are a lot of very successful, um, effective efforts that are in the early stage, by which I mean, you know, years two, three, four of implementing meaningful impact on the ground. Um, so when we talk about companies per se, again, members of the supply chain, I think there is a very nuanced understanding, but perhaps less of an expertise on the implementation of how to pursue these projects in ways that are capturing the multidimensionality that Emily had spoken to. Um, but the project proponents themselves, whether they're operating at the community level, landscape or jurisdictional level, um, there is a lot more expertise that is present. Um, it's, it's, and the impact and the benefits of that are things that we're going to be seeing in the years ahead. Thank you. Um, Emily, just uh, looking forward, um, it, 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 say in five years' time, you've got some of your suppliers, partners, producer communities implementing this. What does that look like for them? If you, if you think forward, I mean, I'm not asking you to talk about a specific landscape, but are we talking about uh, a mixture of reforestation, of of, of, of of positive land use, so you have high carbon stock, uh, high uh, conservation value land being protected and enhanced. So it's not just about forests, it's also about 
other areas. I mean, now, when you look up this on, on Google, one of the first things that comes up is things like mangrove swamps to protect coastlines. And that's very important, but that's not going to be in every situation. So just maybe bring it to life a bit as to what, what, what we're actually talking about, to, to Gary's point about the, the, the action being on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the vision is that you have landscapes where the local stakeholders are driving land use plans that successfully deliver on sustainable production and long-term forest and natural landscape uh, protection and restoration, and that those systems work um, work symbiotically together um, in a way that can allow for green growth um, for the long run. So I know that's quite a idealistic vision, but I think that's kind of what we have to keep in mind and, and especially keep in mind the the centralizing the the local priorities, the local stakeholders and having their voices drive it. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many areas still to explore here. Um, we did a, a session with Nestle and a, a group of companies November 2019, where we talked about uh, natural capital and incentivizing smallholders and we got 40 of the world's biggest uh, brands and traders and experts in the room we all we, and we said look how do we incentivize smallholders and their communities to protect and enhance nature in the supply chain and everybody kind of said looked at the floor and scratched their heads and kind of went well there's lots of other issues we need to tackle at the same time um, and we know it's a priority but we know it's a fiendishly complex challenge out of that meeting came this uh, link I've just put on the chat, which is a, a collaborative research project which Nestle and others supported, uh, including the German government, where we looked at actually the areas that need to be explored to learn across different commodities to, to, uh, to try and enhance livelihoods and, and answer some of the questions that need to be answered in order to move this forward. So I hope that's a useful resource for you all. We are continuing this work and trying to work out uh, with another collaborative research project led by my colleague, Dr. Peter Stanbury, we're trying to work out how you bring in the carbon angle into smallholder resilience and sustainable livelihoods. And that brings me then neatly to this question about carbon accounting rules, because one of the outcomes of the meeting we did with, I think you were there as well, Emily, in, in November 2019, was um, how are we going to account for carbon and, and, do, and have incentives? And how do we know whose tree is who and whose ton of carbon is whose? So, John, uh, let me turn to you first on that. How do you see the, the accounting rules changing to, to enable this? Um, and I appreciate that might be one of the toughest questions anyone's ever been asked. Um, so, but please do your best. Yeah, I, I doubt it's one of the, the toughest questions, but indeed it's a, it's a tricky subject. There's quite a few things there that we need to both have, I'd say the, the credibility and then also kind of the correct accountability, the correct um, attribution of the emissions. I think it's good to start with just the question of, are we able to measure the emissions or the sequestration accurately? Earth is a big place. A lot of land is in remote places. A lot of the carbon we're talking about, you know, is in trees, in soils, not easy to access, easy to measure. And so if we think about how do we know the carbon's there, how do we know the carbon stays there over decades? That's a big challenge. And we like we have, you know, emerging tools, remote sensing, things like that, but we're not yet able to just, you know, sense the carbon in the soil from space, it, it requires going on ground and taking taking soil samples and things like that. And so there's that first fundamental question of, we need systems that help us, help us understand how much carbon's in the soil and ultimately get to the point where those can be predictive and not rely on people visiting sites all over the world, taking soil cores every year. I think it's just impractical. So I'd start with that fundamental question of, we need better systems 
to measure the carbon, especially if the future of the planet depends on us getting those metrics right. We then have some questions about like, how do we attribute that carbon? And I think this is a, a really important point because these supply chains are shared. So if we imagine any of the, the farms or forestry activities we're talking about, um, those commodities often get pooled. And so there's this kind of sun as middleman that, um, that's in the system and they can kind of mix the commodity in different farms. It's, you know, suppliers are kind of, uh, sorry, purchasers are kind of blind to which supplier might actually be producing their product. And even if you do know which farm is producing your product, often that farm supplying, um, supplying many other uh, supply chains as well. And so being able to just track, you know, where does your commodity come from is a challenge. And when it comes to financing the interventions on that farm, we then have to not only be able to quantify that carbon, but say, okay, this amount of it, you know, uh, is Nestle's carbon, this amount is Pepsi's carbon, this amount is Kellogg's carbon, et cetera. And, and that's a big challenge. Um, we have made some big strides in that. A, a program I've participated heavily in over the past two or three years is one led by the gold standard called the Value Change Program. And I think it's a really significant advancement in fixing a couple of the, the key gaps in how we would do that attribution and taking what we've called a supply shed approach and trying to make sure that we have the right accounting mechanisms in place that allow, allow companies to invest in interventions in their supply shed and be able to not get blocked by these questions about, do you know if that's your commodity? Or even if you do know, um, does it matter as long as your intervention is in the supply shed that, that survives you? And so kind of breaking past some of this chain of custody accounting to saying, you know, if you source from that supply shed and you're financing an intervention there that you can take account of that carbon. And so I think that's, that's a significant improvement that allows, you know, the, allows the resources to flow within these, these supply chains in terms of insetting. The one last thing I would say in terms of how do we measure and how do we assure credibility is I think ultimately we'll be moving towards, towards a space where we're really trying to keep the carbon accounting within the value chains. What we see right now is everybody in, in you know, every industry is rushing towards trying to make a net zero kind of claim. And when we look at the idea of how they're gonna get there, there's a lot of people looking towards natural climate solutions where their business has very little you know, impact on the land. And ultimately, if everybody needs to get to zero, which is what we need as a planet, it's not rational that companies that are in technology, oil and gas, transportation, et cetera, are, you know, can reduce all of their emissions by burying carbon on the land. The, the companies that are actually using the land for production are where those emission reductions most logically um, would fall. And I think that's something that there'll be this kind of credibility bubble to shake out over you know, how everybody as a community is accounting for, for carbon. Thank you. Um, and do you see technology as a silver bullet here? I'm very conscious of the term silver bullet never really happening, does it? Uh, <laughs> there never is one. Um, what was that great quote from H.L. Mencken? He said, for every complex project, for every complex problem, there is a, a simple, there's a solution that's simple, clear and wrong. Um, yeah. but, but technology gets hyped up a lot. I saw Microsoft and Rabobank buying space in the FT website to promote a video of Rabobank and Microsoft in Indonesia putting sensors on trees to measure 
carbon. And then Microsoft was buying the climate credit. And, and then the whole video is about the fact they bought 500 credits, which seemed like a very small pilot to me. Um, but it makes you wonder, is that the future for these communities? Because that looks very expensive. Uh, and then on the other hand, you hear about drone technology and you hear about uh, LIDAR and, of course, the evolution of Global Forest Watch and so on. So what role will technology play here in the next few years, John? And then maybe, uh, Gary, you can comment on that as well, as well as the accounting side of things. There are those measurement challenges I mentioned, and we, we clearly need better technology to have credible metrics of carbon across forestry and soil systems you know, at scale and to support the systems that are needed for this attribution. But it, it's only a part of the solution. We also need the actual action to take place. So we could have the technology, as you're saying, you know, to put a collar on each of billions of trees globally and be able to measure the carbon. But ultimately, you know, we need the incentives to be in the right place and the, the action to take place to preserve those trees and actually to restore um, places where there should be trees that there aren't. And I think that's the, that's the missing piece. The technology might enable a little bit, but won't really solve. That's one about you know, ambition, how we manage ourselves as a society, as an economy, et cetera. And that's where I think we're making some strides, but probably need more. I think there's an Einstein quote about the difference between like technology and humanity. And we probably need as much advancement in our humanity and how we act together as a community as we do on technology to, um, to solve these issues. Yeah, so part of the mix, but no silver bullet. Gary, um, let me turn to you for, for comments on the carbon accounting rules side of things. Uh, and then if you have any comment on, on the tech, uh, though John, John's put it very well, I think, do, do, do bring them in. If I can ask you to be relatively brief, mainly because we've got some phenomenal questions here, which I'd really like to put to you all. Uh, and I'd like to, to get to that as soon as we can. So Gary. Yeah, uh, thank you, Toby. I, I will be brief because I think John has done a, a, a fantastic job and this is much more squarely in his domain of expertise than it is mine. But so I'll, I'll just flag, I, I really like the point John made about technology as an enabler, not a solution. And I think that really is something that we should all take away. Um, on the account, on the carbon accounting side, one general, but I think very important point that I would make um, that intersects with NCS under this banner of enabling conditions is that I think one area where there's a lot of work that needs to be done is how we nest the accounting of specific project interventions on the ground um, within wider jurisdictional commitments and accounting that governments are making. Right. So there's uh, we we have um, you know we're we're focused in our discussion today very very squarely on the private sector, which is which is good. Um, but there are, are, are equally focused conversations and, and, and efforts to pressure movement in the public sector, right? So government control and action around reducing emissions at, at larger landscape and jurisdictional scales. Um, and that's a very good positive development that we're seeing much more action there. Um, what we do see happening right now, though, is uh, there are places where private sector, public sector work collaboratively and very effectively with project interventions on the ground, nesting within larger jurisdictional commitments and all of that working well. But we also have instances where there's a bit of an adversarial relationship between governments who want to uh, claim and assert um, benefits over the emission reductions that are happening at jurisdictional scales 
somewhat to the to the subordination of the project interventions on the ground. So how do we nest and account for the project, the reductions that are taking place at the project level with beneficiaries being rewarded for those actions within the larger jurisdictional um, efforts that are being made and accounting happening at that scale where there are benefits being made, uh, being rewarded typically more in bilateral or multilateral sort of arrangements. So I just wanna highlight, I think that is an area where there's a, a, a special uh, need for more attention around how to square the accounting and the benefit sharing between projects and larger jurisdictions. And who's doing that kind of research? Is that a nascent area that people are jumping on now or is there a body of work that's being done that we can draw upon to think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I also, I would invite John to, to, to maybe share a couple of words on that. But, you know, many of us are probably familiar with Art Trees, which is an initiative that has um, developed a framework for how to do that, looking at the ways in which to nest project interventions within larger jurisdictional accounting frameworks. Um, that's the one that I am most familiar with. It, uh, it, it I think, has been finalized um, and is being considered by some countries for adoption, but I know also there is a very strong rule. Uh, there are very strong views that some governments have around the specific uh, rules that have been outlined within that framework. But John, maybe I would invite you to contribute a bit more there too. Yeah, I, I would identify it as something that that's still a, a gap that needs some convergence in terms of how we, how we kind of measure and record those types of, of emission reductions or, or sequestrations. I think it's the kind of case where there's there's attempts to create markets around that, attempts to create markets around insetting and things like that currently. But I think they're mostly at kind of a pilot stage and happening in different pockets. And ultimately we need that, we need that to be one system. I, I think one of the one of the concerns is if we don't have, if we don't have kind of a some kind of unified global accounting system for that, there's a risk that the cards in everybody's hand look like a very good, you know, deck of cards, but when you put them on the table all together, that they don't actually add up to, to a full deck. We need to get these, you know, pilot programs and how we do the on the ground measurement somehow all converging towards, can we have one adequately transparent system about how we're accounting for land-based carbon and who's um, making claims on that carbon? I mean, how, how those things fit together across, across supply chains. Yeah, thank you. I think that's like the program that um, that seems like the right one to to own that. Thank you. I want to finish off um, with well, we've got about fifteen minutes left. So I want to finish off with some really practical discussion about tools and ways we look at this further. But Emily, I think you wanted to come in here. Yeah, I just wanted to add on. I completely agree with what John and Gary are highlighting, and I think we all are identifying so many challenges that exist with the different accounting frameworks or absence of accounting frameworks. Um, and I think that we need to, at the same time, really keep in mind that we need to very rapidly drive towards pragmatic solutions that we can all agree on. And maybe those solutions or frameworks um, improve over time. But I do fear that there is going to be a divergence of frameworks or non-alignment of, of ways to report. And that's going to just deter companies from taking action because there's so much uncertainty around, will this count if I even do something in this country? Or will I account if I even do this type of intervention? And people may start even 
splitting the holistic type landscape programs that we're talking about and saying, well, I only want to do the tree planting part of it because that's the only clear part that I can account for. So I think we're in this very like almost crisis moment um, where we can hopefully learn from the past and how long it took us to agree on a definition of what deforestation means and agree on or even start to talk about what the progress reporting frameworks are for that commitment and hopefully come up with some some faster pragmatic solutions along the way. Thank you. Well, lots of great questions here. Um, I uh, We've covered some of uh, the the questions already in the remarks you've made. So I'm going to ask you to focus maybe on, on the more practical side of things. We've got a good question here from Philomena Rinaldi. He's asking, Emily, tell us about the tools you use to measure impact of initiatives in the agricultural supply chain. Clearly, regenerative agriculture is the term du jour, and, and we know soil sequesters far more carbon than trees do. Um, so just, I guess, a conversation about the tools for, for measurement that are being used at the moment and perhaps how you see them evolving. And then let's see if John and, uh, and Gary have a comment on that. Emily. Yeah, so not to pass on that question, but I am more working on the forest side of things and my colleagues are more on the agricultural measurement side. So I wonder if John or Gary has a good answer there. I can attempt one. Um, I think a barrier that comes even before like measuring regenerative ag is defining it. And I think we're still at this stage where there isn't like a clear, you know, unified definition of what are we trying to measure and what are the what are those practices? And I think part of that is a lack of, you know, lack of as a community having put in the effort yet to have that definition. And I think part of it is that agriculture is a really varied kind of practice depending on the commodity type, the location, et cetera. And I see the general principle of regenerative ag being the land is stronger next year inherently than it is this year and what are the practices that make our land stronger. But what that looks like in practice is gonna be different from one location to another. And so that that's one thing we're struggling with is just having a definition of what does regenerative ag mean? Um, there are programs out there nevertheless to try to measure it. Um, a lot of those when it comes to measuring whether something we can refer to as regenerative ag is happening are very practice-based and sending out you know some surveys to farms and ensuring they're doing, you know, a handful of, of key things. We can look at, you know, in, in kind of traditional um, temperate climate row crops, things like winter cover crop, low-till or no-till agriculture, et cetera, are, you know, typical. And we can measure the, the extent to which those are happening. And there, there's even some satellite technology we've been looking at um, as an option for trying to measure some of those practices, like seeing what, what acreage, what hectares have um, winter cover on over the winter or to being able to detect patterns of tillage and things like that. There's then also the, we're talking a lot about climate and carbon here. There's then also the, how do we measure the, the carbon contribution there? And I think um, I was referring to this before, but currently the only very credible way of measuring that is to go on site and take, I've been on, on site with projects doing this, like a meter deep core of soil, sending it off to a laboratory we can't be doing that, you know, uh, hectare by hectare, year over year, all across the the planet. I think what we need are is enough data there and enough correlation with practices to allow us to be predictive in how those practices lead to soil sequestration and have some validation, but rely more on more on measuring practices and and relating it to carbon is I think the only practical practical way forward on that. 
Thank you. Gary, anything you'd like to add on that? I, I think John has done a great job um, in covering that. And just in the interest of time, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize like a broader point, which is to say that I, I and John alluded to this, that I, I, I think the specific tools and approaches that are used are something that we should align with the capacity of the producer um, that we're targeting, right? And so um, very simple uh, sort of practice-based survey tools that enable us to get a sense for what farmers are doing and are not doing, um, rewarding and motivating behavior change in the direction of what we want them to, do, to be doing more of, those are the kind of tools that we should be um, uh, uh, refining and, and promoting. In cases where we're, we're talking about larger industrial scale monoculture modes of production, it's possible to be, to be deploying much more effective, precise measurement tools, and we should be reward and we should be promoting those. So, a general point around the the, the, the technology and the approach that that we deploy being something that's aligned with the capacity of the producer to um, utilize that. Thank you. Well, lots of great questions here, um, some of which I mentioned have been covered. Um, just a quick one about um, the counting methodology. We touched on it, but I wonder if you had any further comment on this. Charlotte Opal from the Forest Conservation Fund is, is asking, isn't the accounting methodology a barrier as well, especially for forest conservation? In many products, land use change is the main driver of life cycle carbon emissions. But under the current rules, if I buy from a farm cleared more than 20 years ago, that emission goes to zero. It's also difficult for companies to include forest conservation as an inset under the current rules. Um, anyone like to comment on that further? We have touched on it, but it seems like an important point. Any volunteers? John? Yeah, a, a resource I could point to, which I, I think should be on our website, is a document called the Land Use, Land Use Change Guidance, in which um, we worked with about 40 different um, stakeholders, a lot of companies and also a lot of NGOs to put together this pretty lengthy guidance on how to account for carbon in land-based systems, in corporate supply chains, and in, in product footprints. And I wouldn't say it addresses all the challenges that are there, but I think it, you know, it, together it gives a set of solutions for a lot of the thorny accounting challenges on, on land-based systems. And we're currently involved in an initiative led by the GHG protocol to update their guidance on how to account for land-based systems. And so I'm hoping a lot of the same solutions get adopted there. It seems like Seems like that's uh, still a work in, in progress, but sometime next year, the GHG protocol should be publishing an updated guideline on these accounting challenges. Um, I don't think it will solve, you know, everything. We'll probably never have perfect accounting systems for something so complicated, but what I would like to see is actually that the accounting kind of gets out of the way. The measurement is simple enough and right enough, even if not perfect, that, that we can stop talking about accounting and get to the, getting the right actions done. And so hopefully we get to that point where we have clear, credible methodologies in place in the coming couple of, of years. Thank you. Um, clearly, all of this sort of thing is expensive. And um, public funding is interesting here. We've seen blended finance approaches from development organizations and development finance work with smallholders and brands to help improve community livelihoods, which that can then obviously help improve carbon sequestration, nature protection and enhancement. What do you guys think, uh, what do you all think the, the role of public funding is here to leverage and, and, and scale up private investment on this? Daniela Carrion is asking, you know, for example, for land-based interventions and companies that don't have funds to work on this at the moment, do you see public funding 
evolving here. Maybe, Gary, you have a comment. I'm thinking of some of these state banks. You know, if you look at the amount of money the State Bank of India puts into Indian agriculture, it is astonishing. And they don't get a lot of it back, it seems to me. So there's, there's clearly a lot of state cash out there for agriculture, but it's often, as we know, used in the wrong way. So do you see any signs of evolving public funding here to support some of the things we've been talking about? Gary. Yeah, um, I, that's a great question, and it's one that, that that in some ways sort of you know could deserve its own and its own session in the in entirety uh, to really probe that more deeply. But yeah, I would say maybe a, there's a couple of things there. Um, I, I think um, you know, and placing project-based interventions within the within the context of larger landscape or jurisdictional efforts. Um, you know, there there is an enormous amount of of potential, right, for um, leveraging the impact and and also for replicating, right. So speaking to scale, which we've not which we've not talked about too much, but for project interventions to be nested within larger landscape or jurisdictional initiatives. Now, companies are much more inclined and um, capable of funding project level interventions than they are typically larger multi-stakeholder um, multi-year efforts to develop uh, jurisdictional programs. And so one of the one of the places where we're seeing like a, a lot of willingness uh, in the public sector, but also um, in the philanthropic donor world is in 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 funding and supporting those kind of outreach and efforts that are done to provide the larger multi-stakeholder context in which, project level interventions can take place and to leverage the effectiveness of those. That's one, one area. Another place where we're seeing a lot of, uh, of activity, I think, and willingness in the public sector is to support um, social entrepreneur, entrepreneurial efforts, right? That are maybe technically a private sector enterprise, but that are clearly addressing a public sector good. And so some efforts to co-fund the development of that might be IP or innovative in, innovation around private sector approaches to address shared common uh, public public sector issues. We're seeing a bit more of a movement in, in that space. And I think that's a direction where we'll continue to see progress. Thank you. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left but, and lots of great questions. Um, Andrea Canzano is asking, do we need a, a global standardized carbon trading market to avoid duplication and promote harmonization? That's obviously something we've heard about for many years is a possibility. There are, there are various carbon markets out there, but it's, it's pretty patchy and pretty nationally based. So any, any signs of that happening post COP26 or is that a bit of a pipe dream still? John, brief thoughts? Sure. Um, I guess one one point I would bring up is I think it's a little bit less important to have a carbon trading system than kind of a carbon registry. And I think we might actually need to see less, less trading of commodity across value chains in the future, because I think we need to see all value chains getting to zero. So the idea of, you know, I'm going to clean up, I'm going to offset cleaning up my yard by picking up the trash in the neighbor's yard. Ultimately, that's not going to make sense. What we need is like the credibility and the, the measurement and the registry of what's happening in each of our yards, but I think the system to be trading carbon when everybody needs to have their numbers to zero, we'll, we'll start to see a little bit less of that, I think, and I hope in the coming years. But I do think there's a need to establish, um, I don't know if I'd say one, but hopefully one or very few systems for kind of you know measuring, registering, verifying the carbon and the attribution, because without that, 
I think there's there's a big risk that everybody's doing their own accounting and there's a lot of overlap about what what carbon we're talking about. And that ultimately gets us to the point where everybody thinks we're doing enough and we find that in, in reality we're not. And, and of course the, the consequences could be disastrous. Great, well, thank you. Yeah, important to, to bear that in mind. Emily, let me give the, the final word to you. It must be difficult to keep up with all the the, meth, the, the uh, terminology. I mean, we, as I mentioned earlier, we had zero deforestation, landscape approaches, and we got net zero, and now it's nature positive. Um, there's a number of questions here in the chat about how you frame these approaches. You know, is it through the SDGs? Is it through social approaches? Is it a mix? And of course, language does matter because you can't turn up uh, beyond meetings like this <laughs> and, and bandy around all these different terminologies and expect people to understand what you mean and how they all join up. So I mean, how do you see that, that evolving from, from Nestle's point of view? We know what the objective is, I think, <laughs> which is rural communities being sustainable, enhancement of land and protection of biodiversity, enhancement of nature, et cetera. But how we talk about it does seem to matter along the journey. What are your thoughts on that in closing? I mean, yeah, it causes a lot of confusion, um, even terms like insetting carbon credits, claims, et cetera. And I think what we're focused on is that, what are we trying to get to? What is the impact? What's the output? And um, trying to just cut through some of that confusion and, and try and really focus on reporting on progress, communicating about progress, communicating about what those really, the right interventions are that I think we all talk about what it is that needs to happen on the ground. And so we're focused there and then trying to use those as examples to inform the discussions. Thank you. Yes, it's all about really performance at the end of the day, isn't it? And of course, it's becoming easier to measure these things and to talk about how we're actually making a difference than it was a few years ago. Important to remember how fast moving this is and how far we've come in the last five years or so. Thank you all for your contributions. Thank you all for the great questions from the audience. We did get to some of them. Um, the others we can try and answer next week at the conference. So do please join us then. We'll, we'll of course have other webinars about this and there are some excellent uh, interviews and webinars uh, with our participants on the Innovation Forum website. Plenty of resources there to learn more and to hear uh, further insights. But for now, thank you so much to, to Emily to Gary and to John and to all of you for a fantastically interesting last hour. And we shall see as many of you as we can, we hope, next week for further discussion on this at the conference. <laughs>